welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Hello and welcome to The Daily Reprieve podcast, where the sexaholic or sex addict can find experience, strength, and hope from those that have traveled this road ahead of us. This episode is produced in the spirit of the 12th step to carry the message to other sexaholics. Every effort has been made to remove full names of the speakers in these recordings. This is done in order to follow the 11th tradition regarding anonymity at the level of press, radio, television, and film. This podcast is self-supporting through contributions. If you enjoy listening to this podcast and would like to support The Daily Reprieve, please do so by going to GoFundMe.com, search for The Daily Reprieve, and click on Donate Now. Without further ado, please enjoy today's Daily Reprieve. Okay, I believe I'm unmuted now. Um, I'm a little nervous. I'm going to try to divide this up so that I get the experience, strength, and hope all within about 15 to 20 minutes. So I decided to start with experience, starting with my childhood. I'm the youngest of six children. I grew up in an LDS or Mormon family in Idaho, and I always looked back at my childhood and thought that in so many ways it was what people would consider this perfect, idyllic childhood out in the country, roaming the fields, climbing trees, and stuff like that, that I could never understand why I went in the directions that I did with my my acting out and my, my rebellion. Um, I, I started realizing, I, I started seeing things differently as I learned things in the last year or so. Uh, oh, I forgot to say I am a uh, grateful recovering sexaholic uh, with a little bit over 10 months sobriety now. So... Um, being the youngest of six, my parents always thought that I was kind of spoiled because my older brothers and sisters would always want to play with me. But as I asked more questions and looked back, during that period of time, um, I, I, I learned that my oldest brothers were having a lot of problems. It was in the late 60s, and they were basically hippies and into drugs and all of that. And uh, one brother spent time in prison for evading the draft during the Vietnam War, and the other brother, oldest brother spent time in prison for drug-related charges. My parents moved twice trying to change the environment, trying to help my oldest brothers. My, my, the brother just older than myself, my, my oldest brother is 20 years older than I am. So that, those were the two oldest brothers. <clears throat> the next brother just older than myself was a little bit less than two years old when I was born. So he was a toddler when I was an infant. And so I suspect what happened was my parents were so stressed and, you know, in the pregnancy and in my, in my early childhood that, um, I, I just, I, I didn't bond with my parents the way that I should have, the, the way that it would have been healthy. I actually believe that I bonded with my, another brother who's uh, 10 years older than myself more than I did with anyone else. Uh, 
<clears throat> so with that lack of healthy bonding combined with an environment where my parents came from, they were Depression-era kids, um, came from these you know, pioneer backgrounds. My mom's family homesteaded in New Mexico, she, so she grew up out in the desert, you know, scratching a living out in the desert. And so it was this very stoic, um, you know, mental toughness, grit your teeth and move forward and don't let anything stop you from, from doing the things that need to be done kind of mentality. And so as I was growing up, I, I realize now, looking back at it, that I had an unhealthy level of independence, not, not because I was neglected or abused or anything, but just because I think the lack of bonding combined with that atmosphere made it so when I had challenges or when I had things that I had to figure out as a kid or an adolescent, it never even crossed my mind to go to my parents. <clears throat> I always loved animals. I always had lots of pets and would always be trying to rescue injured wild animals, and that also kind of set a pattern that ended up becoming dysfunctional later in my life. As a teenager, I was, I was uh, rebellious. I I think I resented my parents when they tried to parent me because I didn't feel the bonding the way I should have, and I rebelled against them, and I also rebelled against my higher power that I would call God or my Heavenly Father. Um, and I, I see now I see a parallel between the way I re- rebelled against my parents and the way I rebelled against my faith um, and my, my higher power, where I was essentially trying to prove all of them wrong. I, I, my older brother, the one who's 10 years older than me, reminded me a few years ago that at one point I told him that I was trying to prove that wickedness could be happiness. And I, I, I first discovered pornography in uh, magazines laying on the side of the road when I'd be riding my bike around, magaz- you know, <clears throat> pornographic magazines that people threw out the windows. Uh, I didn't really know what I was looking at. I, I learned a lot about sex from animals, just knowing about the biology of it. But I would see things in the magazines that I would be curious about. And as I, as I reached puberty and really discovered masturbation, then I, I would uh, hide the magazines. The thing that I found, though, even as a teenager, uh, reading the uh, the letters reading reading things the fantasy um, was something that always had more impact on me than any pictures any of the visual stuff did and I remember even back as early as six years old having the fantasies of the perfect relationship and I remember reading I think I was in first or second grade on the playground at school and I had read something somewhere I read everything I could get my hands on and I, I had read something in some romance novel or something <clears throat> even at that age that and I remember something about the the woman in the book um, meeting this man with this mysterious distant look in his eyes of hidden pain or something like that and it was just this this whole romantic thing and and I remember thinking I want to have that kind of look in my eye so that I can meet the the right woman and she'll make my life complete kind of thing I didn't don't think I consciously thought that but I did consciously think if I have that look in my eye. Um, I'll, I'll be attractive. And I remember, you know, so at, at a very early age, sitting and staring off into the, off at the mountains and fantasizing and trying to give myself this mysterious, hidden pain kind of look. And anyway, um, moving on into my teenage years, I discovered masturbation and that quickly became a multiple times daily habit. And 
um, started, eventually started smoking pots and drinking, kind of eventually you know, drifted away from the pot. It didn't, it didn't appeal to me as much, but I, I really got heavily into drinking. So that I was drinking in school, and, um, and I, I was proud of what I could get away with. I always thought I was, I was pretty smart and never seemed to get caught. And, uh, but at the same time, I knew that what I was doing was wrong and unhealthy, and I always had this belief, this, uh, the, the spiritual core that I, I believed in, but I, at the same time, I realized that I was consciously repelling against it. I was rejecting it. And when I got to be about 18, and I was seeing things differently, there were a number of things that happened that led me to decide that I wanted to change my life and stop heading in that direction. So I spent a lot of time studying different philosophies and religions and science, and, um, and I, I spent time fasting and praying and, and decided to go back to the faith that I had grown up in. And as part of that, I decided that I would go on a two-year mission for my church. And I went to my church leaders and confessed everything. And um, it was enough that my, my parents said later that they remember seeing the bishop come out of that interview looking like he had seen a ghost or looking like he was going to be sick. And I, I felt like I was completely sincere. I, I, I wanted to do the right things. Um, I turned everything around, but at the same time, I recognized that I wasn't completely honest. I, I struggled to quit drinking, and I was, I was kind of worried. I, I was relieved because I thought, oh, if I hadn't quit drinking, eventually I could have become an alcoholic. <clears throat> and looking back on it now, I'm realizing that I was an addict at that point. Um, sometime in my early teenage years to mid-teenage years, I had become an addict. And so after that point, I transferred my addiction essentially to being a, a workaholic, mostly. Um, I, I worked hard on my mission. I, I, I worked hard in school. I always struggled with this sexual component where I would try to, try to not fantasize and masturbate. And um, I could go sometimes days to weeks, or I could go up to maybe a maximum of about three months white-knuckling it. And then uh, whatever stress, and I, I would feel... I would feel like I, I just couldn't stand it anymore, and I would act out uh, looking for relief. Pornography was never really a big problem. Um, after those the teenage years, it just wasn't something that appealed to me a lot. But looking back on it now, I continued with the romantic fantasy, where I was in the habit of anytime I was in a room, in a class or a, a conference room or on a bus or whatever, I was just in the habit of picking out at least one woman, one female, that I, I found attractive, and I would sit there and admire her and objectify and fantasize. And it wouldn't necessarily be a sexual fantasy. I, I would feel okay about it if it wasn't a sexual fantasy. But I could sit there and weave this whole fantasy of who she was and what her background was and um, if I met her, what uh, kind of a relationship we might be able to have. And then if I was feeling more down, that romantic fantasy could easily morph into the sexual fantasy. <clears throat> so that, uh, that got me through school. I kind of, kind of, was kind of going along on that baseline. Because I was being a workaholic, I was being an overachiever, and I got good grades, uh, got into medical school, moved out to Boston, and I met my, my wife, my first wife, when I was in school. 
and one of the big attractions between the two of us was that she had also had problems with drugs and alcohol through her teenage years, and we just connected quickly. We became good friends, and we were married within about six months, and uh, there were strengths in the marriage, but what we didn't realize was that both of us were addicts. We had uh, we had uh, some twins, twin daughters, who were born three months prematurely, and that was very stressful while I was in medical school. And uh, life went on, and it was busy and stressful, and I was continuing kind of at my baseline, sometimes having these slips. Um, she became, when I was in residency, she became pregnant again, and she had kidney stones in the pregnancy and started taking pain medications and went downhill with addiction at that point. And I was stressed and burned out and depressed, and my acting out was uh, getting worse. And uh, I, was, I would watch even just R-rated movies or something and, and fantasize and masturbate. And at the same time, I would binge eat with stress, and I would spend money that I wasn't willing to tell my wife about because it was irresponsible spending. And sometimes I would over-exercise, and uh, I, was, I would take unnecessary risks. And, um, and I, I, I finally, uh, a patient came in and saw me. I had seen her a few times, and then she started asking me some, for help with some sexual questions. And that led me, I, I started fantasizing. I started uh, acting inappropriately with her. Um, that led to a, a relationship where... Um, that became sexual, and after about three months, I, I kept, I was in that cycle where I, I would see her and we would act out, and I would feel horrible, I'd feel all the shame and guilt and, and say, I'm not going to do this anymore, and then one or two or three weeks later, I would hit a low point, and I just would feel like I, I just can't, I just don't care anymore, and I would call her again. But after about three months, I ended it completely, that was about the same time as the birth of my son. And I just, I was so ashamed. I thought I could never tell anyone about this. I just have to take care of it myself, and eventually maybe I could go and talk with my bishop and go through the whole repentance process. I made it about three months and realized I was having suicidal thoughts, and so I went to my bishop, and my wife was still active in her addiction, and that, you know, my, my disclosure of my infidelity didn't help her with her addiction, and things went downhill from there. We struggled. She went. She was in and out of the hospital. She was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Um, <clears throat> during that time, toward the end of that time, I, I was recognizing that I always, I felt like I had this darkness inside of me that I had to keep hidden. That if I shared with other people, if other people saw, then they would be scared of me. That they would reject me. They would know that I wasn't the person that they thought I was on the surface. And I remember at one point my wife was, uh, we, were, we were on the verge of divorce. Um, you know, all these things were happening. Um, I was actually in the Air National Guard and I had been deployed to Guam. And I remember not being able to sleep. I went down to the beach early one morning and I was praying and just begging to have this, this, this box, this darkness. This, I, I, I imagined it as a black box inside my chest. And I was just begging to have this taken away. And I got this image in my mind of my father in heaven. And he reached out and he took the box. And I felt this relief. And I was thinking, yes, you can take this from me. You can, you can crush this. You can destroy this. You can free me from this. And instead, he took this box and he cradled it like a baby. And that hit me 
so hard at that time. I didn't understand it, but I knew that it was something important that I needed to remember and that I needed to try to figure out. And that didn't solve the problems. Things continued on. My wife and I were divorced. Uh, eventually, I remarried. Uh, there's a lot more that goes in there. But um, then in about 2011, um, so a few years after our divorce, and it was not a pretty divorce, and after the divorce, it was years of fighting in court. My wife was making all kinds of accusations against me to the IRS and to the Child Protective Services and the police and everybody else, the state medical board. and um, She was going downhill with her mental health. And in 2011, she was murdered by the son of a man that she had moved in with in a murder-suicide. And after that, you know, the, the whole thing was horrible, and, but we thought, okay, it's over. This, this is over. We can move on. And I recognized I was having nightmares. I recognized I had PTSD-type symptoms, but I thought, okay, this is mild, and the trauma's over, so it's okay. I can move on. It's going to be all right now. Um, but as I tried to get back into work and my career and trying to be the kind of father that I, uh, and, and husband that I wanted to be, I just felt like something was broken and I couldn't get on track. And I, I was struggling and I, and I started turning more to my, my bad habits, my acting out, whether it was spending, eating, including the sexual stuff. I started going online and looking at some more pornography and going out to some of the online hookup sites and things like that. And I just thought, no, I would never do this. I'm never going to meet someone. But then I started getting closer. I started talking with, corresponding with, um, <clears throat> with other women and, and wanting to meet them. And it scared me. And I just thought, this is crazy. This is stupid. And, and so then when the opportunity came up with another patient that I, I had known for many years and she opened up to me and, and uh, you know, indicated that there was some interest there. And so I started engaging in a relationship with this second patient. That went on for about three months. It didn't rise to the level of, you know, it, it, was, it was more of a romantic kind of relationship but with sexual aspects. Um, and then it ended after about three months and we continued just socially just being friends, acquaintances. Um, I kept struggling. I, I felt like, okay, I, I just, at that point, I kind of gave up on myself. And I thought, I, I, can't, I can't seem to stop this. I can't seem to, to be getting better. So I just have to control it. And eventually, if I control it, then eventually I can open up to my bishop and I can, I can you know, get things figured out. But every time I tried to do that, it seemed like things would get a little bit worse. And I changed jobs, um, just working in another situation, um, again, doing the overwork, the eating, the spending, all of these things. Um, and I, I got involved with the third patient. And this one was the, the most involved, um, the most quickly. And at the same time, I, I, I looked at it. I remember vividly, I remember being in my office right after it started and kind of laughing to myself and thinking, you know, here it is, uh, another damsel in distress. I just can't, can't stop. I, I can't help myself. And it was a combination where I, I felt like I was helping them or I wanted to help them, but it was also sexual and <clears throat> it was also the romantic fantasy. And, and, and I realized at that point, I realized I was self-destructing. I'd been having suicidal thoughts pretty much daily for about the last four years. I remember driving along in the car and imagining the steps in my mind of castrating myself, wondering if I could do that without passing out realizing that, you know, duh, my wife is going to notice if I castrate myself and then I'm going to have to be honest about everything anyway. So, I, of course, I wouldn't do that. 
And, you know, it, it wasn't the thought of the pain that, that stopped me from doing it. It was the thought of having to get open and honest about everything that stopped me from doing it. So eventually I just couldn't stand it anymore. I opened up to my wife and said, I'm really messed up. I've got some serious problems. You should probably just divorce me. And I said, I need to be open with my boss and I need to report myself to the, the state medical board. So I was open and I went to my boss and admitted, they asked and I admitted that I had been having suicidal thoughts. And so they put me under guard and sent me off to treatment and I ended up being in treatment for three months. And um, at times have come very close to divorce, but my wife hasn't divorced me so far. Um, came back from treatments and holding myself accountable, went to the state medical board, or back up. When I was in treatment, I started going to the 12-step, the S programs, the 12-step programs. And there were some significant things that happened. The treatment was helpful, but the most significant things that happened while I was in treatment were the spiritual spiritual realizations. It took me a few weeks to recognize that it was an addictive pattern, that I was, my lust was acting out in these five or six different areas in risk and spending and eating, um, in the codependency, love addiction, the fantasy, the, and the sexual stuff, the sexual acting out. <clears throat> and so I put together my plan looking at all of that and saying, okay, I have to surrender lust in all of these areas and I have to recognize the warning signs in all of these areas because I had just been substituting all these years and setting myself up for a relapse because, uh, you know, I would, I, would have the, I would feel like I had the sexual stuff under control and so then I'd say, okay, now I'm going to start working on cleaning up my diet and getting healthier and that would just, it, it would put me into withdrawal and I would end up acting out again. So, um, plus, I had other spiritual experiences where I, I realized in one of them, I, a spiritual advisor um, suggested that I pray and ask what my standing was before, my, before God. And so I, I went back to my apartment and I prayed, and this image, it was totally unexpected, the image that came to my mind was of forearms, not forearms, but forearms, the arms with scars, lots and lots and lots of scars from cutting on them. And it hit me that I had been cutting myself spiritually and, and emotionally for the last 40 years, just punishing myself, thinking that I was such a bad kid. My parents and my family were so good, and I was such a bad kid that I was just always the bad one. And I realized that I, I learned that I could be loved, I could be lovable. Um, it's still a struggle to see myself that way to an accept, and accept love. Um, my, my wife and I were just going through some things yesterday, and I'm still struggling to accept love, to believe that she could really love and accept me. Um, but just opening up and getting honest lifted the depression that I've been struggling with. Within about two weeks after I opened up and just disclosed everything, my depression was almost gone. So I came home. I've been working on the steps, I've been going to meetings, I've been doing, I really appreciated this noon phone call, the, the group has been wonderful, the, um, <clears throat> the WhatsApp group that uh, is an, an adjunct to this, um, as well as the, LD, the LDS uh, WhatsApp group that sort of spun off from that, have all been wonderful and helpful. Um, just having 10 months sobriety to me is sexual sobriety is, is a huge miracle. I'm, I'm still struggling in all of these areas, but I'm making progress. I can see progress. 
And having 10 months sobriety is just so incredible to me after a lifetime of struggling with this. Um, Let's see, my hope. So that's my experience and my strength. My hope is based on the promises that we read in the meetings. Um, It's mostly the hope of healing, Uh, the hope that I can have healing, that my wife can have healing. Um, I feel progress inside. I feel, in many ways, I feel so much better inside internally and better about myself than I've ever felt in my life. Um, you look at my life on the outside and it's a mess. There are potential legal complications. There's the whole question of my license. I've, I haven't been able to work since I opened up and lost my job and I don't know how, where any of those things are going to be going. But I've got, I, I've, I've got a certain amount of peace because I've got an integrity that I've never had before in my life. And I'm, I'm looking forward to the other promises and, and experiencing all of that. And I think that's pretty much it. So with that, I'll go ahead and pass back to the moderator. Thank you. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve. Mm